This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 67 AD, during the First Jewish-Roman War, Josephus was in charge of Jewish rebels in Galilee, facing the full besieging might of the Roman army under Vespasian and his son Titus. Captured, imprisoned, Josephus declared to them that he'd had a vision that one day Vespasian would be emperor. Two years later, that prophecy came true, and freed from slavery, Josephus enjoyed a privileged position in the imperial household in Rome. There he wrote his great history, the Jewish War, his account of Roman triumph over a divided people. A later work, The Antiquities of the Jews, was treasured by Christians for almost 2,000 years with its apparent corroboration of gospel accounts of Jesus as Messiah. He's become a controversial figure, though, called by many a traitor for changing sides during the Jewish War with Rome. With me to discuss Josephus are Martin Goodman, Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Oxford and President of the Oxford Centre for Hebrew and Jewish Studies, Tessa Rajak, Professor Emeritus of Ancient History at the University of Reading and Senior Research Fellow at Somerville College, Oxford, and Philip Alexander, Professor Emeritus of Jewish Studies at the University of Manchester. Philip Alexander, can you give us the background of the First War, First Jewish Roman War? Yes, I, w- I would begin the story really where Josephus begins it himself in the Jewish War with the Maccabean Rebellion which takes place in 167 BCE. The Jews revolt against their Greek overlords, the Seleucids, and finally establish a a little independent Jewish state. Now, that injects into Jewish society in Judea, Palestine, um, a nationalism that really wasn't there before, a militant nationalism. And That rumbles through the period. The Hasmonean state, which the Maccabees founded, they belong to a priestly house called the House of Hashmonai. The the little independent state they founded lost its independence when Pompey came along, the Roman general Pompey. And in 63, he incorporated that little state into the Roman Empire. The Romans still continued to govern the Jews in the region through the Hasmonean priesthood. So there wasn't really direct rule from Rome at that point. Then they governed it through Herod the Great, who was a sort of local warlord who took over from the the Hasmoneans. And he ruled over the region and over the Jews and, and other peoples as a client king within the Roman Empire. Then he died and his children carved up his his little empire, his little state. But they didn't have the statecraft skills that he had and gradually the Romans were forced to take over direct rule. And this proved quite disastrous because they didn't do it terribly well. How peaceful, uh, from a Roman point of view, was what we could call Judea at the time of, well, say after Agrippa, the son of Herod. Yeah. It it was peaceful enough in that they I don't think they saw the trouble coming. Um, it in wasn't the, a militarised garrison, heavily militarised like no, others uh, now. As I understand it, my, my colleagues are, are better qualified to speak on this, I understand that there wasn't a big military Roman presence at the time. But I, my feeling is that there was an awful lot of discontent simmering below the surface. For what reasons? 
Well, I think that the nationalism which I mentioned, which had been injected, the militant nationalism, which had been injected into Jewish political life by the Maccabees, was rumbling there all the time. I wouldn't say that everybody was subscribing to it, but there were enough hotheads, if you like, and this is Josephus's kind of angle on this, there were enough hotheads, enough militants, zealots, to be um, subscribing to it to really cause a, an awful lot of trouble, which the Romans, I think, didn't really see. The Romans gave the, uh, the Jews there a lot of rope, didn't they? They had three great festivals a year, which wasn't common anywhere else, three great gatherings. The Romans were worried about great gatherings because they yes. might turn into great oppositional gatherings. And so they thought they were very content with the relationship they had there. Well, it's very interesting that the Jews often are exceptional within Roman treatment of peoples. Um, and, you know, they were given certain status under Roman law, which was unusual. Um, but I think there was a mixture of things. Uh, doubtless we'll speak about the causes of the war later, but there was a mixture of things that um, were there beneath the surface that uh, finally, you know, resulted in the, in the outbreak of this a big explosion. Of well, let's go for this now then. Tessera, what events would you say t triggered what was being called the Great Revolt or the First Jewish Roman, Roman, Roman War? Well, the, the thing about this uprising or revolt or, or war is that it's three things at once. It's one of those composite uh, happenings. Um, it's indeed um, a, a rising against Rome, but it's also an internal social revolution. And at the same time, it's a collision which becomes quite widespread between the Jewish and the non-Jewish population uh, of the cities around Judea and then further afield in the Jewish diaspora. And what? all that happens, uh, comes to a head in around 66, 67. So how are these things linked? Well, by one simple thing which you um, have already mentioned, um, uh, Melvin, and that is disorder. Um, keeping order was the Romans' top number one commitment as an imperial power, not uncommon, um, as a priority and here um, they in the end totally failed and in their attempts to do things uh, do so um, made things worse so uh, really um, Rome bore considerable responsibility for the um, uh, lead up to the war uh, they had had um, and here I'm following Josephus' narrative and I don't apologise for it um, we'll be talking no doubt about his um, own um, his, his own slant on things um, but it's a very compelling uh, narrative um, a succession of poor administrators the prefects and procurators that Rome put in place they underestimated this, this little uh, province and religious clumsiness and insensitivity so that um by doing things in the temple doing things doing. in the temple yeah. Pontius Pilate did some of them and in the 60s we have um, the guy who Josephus thinks is, is the ultimate in incompetence and indeed um, 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 uh, uh, just uh, appalling um, appalling conduct Jessius Florus um, who totally lost control um, and this is simultaneous with a judgment being delivered from the centre over a dispute in Caesarea 
here, the Roman administrative centre in the area, um, in a dispute between Jews and Greeks there. So lots going on. You mentioned uh, social conflict. There was a there was, there was an inequality, a very striking inequality. Very very rich, very very poor. That was a fig that figured in the uh, unrest as well, as I understand it. Very much so. In Can my I come view, though to yes. the to Josephus himself? What do we know about his early life? He's in the middle of all this. He's born in thirty seven A.D. Uh, so he's growing up as in inside mm. a, a system which has a uh, has a, a king that uh, the Romans let rule as it were and then he enters into a different situation what was his early life can you give us a brisk view of his early life uh, y- yes, indeed. Um, and um, here it's also relevant that um, uh, Jewish memory is centred on the Hasmonean uh, rulership, that period of uh, semi or total independence that they had had, because Josephus was of that royal line, he tells us through his mother. That's terribly important to him. Uh, he was also priestly. And of course, the wealth and the accumulation of power and of religious and social prestige was around the temple in Jerusalem. And you had, yeah. had a very good education, both in uh, Hebrew and in Greek. He uh, had an right. excellent education. He was teaching others in the temple, like uh, somebody else that we might think of, uh, rather similar to the story of Jesus. He had a good education, and then he um, uh, sought, looked for more education. He joined all three of the sects that he says were the major divisions in Judaism, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, and then followed a guru called Banus in the desert for a while. He did all that, and then he became a young diplomat, really, you might call it. And went to Rome to try to... Went to Rome in 64. Um, and that's what people did in the Roman Empire. Yeah, you you know, if you're an elite, uh, talented young man, you, you joined that sort of world. So went to Rome. Martin Goodman... Uh, he didn't seem to met Nero that we know. There's no evidence that he met Nero, but he got in the court, he got in the swing of things, obviously a clever man indeed in, in every way. But he came back in time for the start of the war, and without any expertise that we know about, but we don't know, we only know what he tells us really in that period in, about himself, he was, um, he was made a general or a leader of some sort, uh, and he was sent to a difficult part. Uh, as the Romans decided that this was completely out of hand, they were going to take it seriously and move in. Can you tell us about his experiences there? Yes, I mean, he didn't have any experience as a, a military man, uh, nor did any of the other Jews who began the rebellion. Um, and uh, uh, our real problem in trying to work out exactly what he did is that our narrative of the war and of his own part in it comes entirely from him. Um, and he was writing after the event, so with the knowledge that the war that he embarked in in uh, 66 AD was going to end up four years later with a terrible disaster for the Jews and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the main place that Jews thought that they should be worshipping their god. And also, on a side, a most magnificent place famed uh, in the whole area, not just in, in that area. Indeed, one one of the greatest buildings of the Eastern Roman Empire, yes. for, for good reasons that Jews all over the empire sent their contributions in order to make it really, really impressive. Uh, and so w- when when the war broke out, it wasn't at all clear who was going to, to lead the Jewish rebels. And uh, Josephus tells us that uh, six months after the war broke out in October of 66, he was appointed as general in Galilee. I went up to command the Roman, the, the Jewish forces against the Romans 
in Galilee, which she did with conspicuous lack of success. Um, it doesn't, doesn't seem to have had much of a clue as to quite how he was going to, 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 to fight a war against extremely disciplined Roman forces. And indeed, he didn't hold on to Galilee for very, very long. And they overwhelmed him and his forces, and there was this incident, well, this incident, this, yes, this incident, where there were 40 of, of him, 40 of them left after weeks of a siege, and they decided on a mutual suicide pact, uh, as we read. Then what happened? Yes, this is the, the most notorious um, episode in Josephus's career, which has uh, affected the way in which he's been seen by later generations down to now. Uh, and he tells it um, with um, a good deal of verve in the account in uh, the Jewish War uh, that uh, he'd lost control of his final siege in Jotapata in Galilee. Um, he thought of surrendering. Uh, he was persuaded by his colleagues uh, not to surrender. Um, uh, he persuaded them that he tried to persuade them that committing suicide was against Jewish law, and he gives us a whole speech in which he tried to say this. Uh, they didn't agree with him, um, so they agreed uh, that instead they would draw lots as to who would kill whom. And eventually, through divine providence, he says there ended up just two of them left, and he persuaded his colleague that the two of them would surrender. And the reason why he does this, uh, he did this, um, according to him, was because God told him to. And so it's rather striking. This narrative is known only from Josephus's own writings. So we would know nothing at all about these events if Josephus didn't tell us. And the reason uh, he tells us this is because he thinks he was clearly right. So he had had nightly dreams, he said, in which God came to him and told him that he, God, was moving to the side of the, uh, of the Romans. And, of course, all this is being written after the war, and it was clear that these divine prophecies were correct. So he was imprisoned, as we understand it, and, and enslaved in, in that sense. But then he, he was brought in front of Aspasian, I'm, I'm, I'm being elliptical, and he told him that against all the odds that you could imagine at that time, he one day would be emperor quite soon, and so would his son Titus. And Aspasian seems to have taken the dream on board and, and, and brought uh, Josephus onto his side. Yes, so we are told so by told Josephus. By <laughs> um, now, the, the, the only uh, part of the whole story that is corroborated by any other ancient source is that Josephus was known as the Jewish prophet who had prophesied that Vespasian would become emperor. Now, in the year 67, when uh, Josephus is said to have made this prophecy, this was, as you say, deeply implausible. There had been a hundred years of the descendants of Julius Caesar had been emperors in Rome. The idea that somebody like Vespasian, who came from an outstandingly undistinguished background, should become emperor would not have occurred to anybody, including Vespasian. Um, but it did happen two years later after a, 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 a civil war in Rome and a series of pretenders to, uh, uh, to Roman power at the, at the centre of Rome. And in due course, the prophecy came true. And so it's clear that it was in the interests of both Vespasian and Josephus to say the prophecy had been said. Whether it was said in 67, of course, we can't now be certain. So he's in Rome, Philip Alexander, and he's 
in, uh, housed by Vespasian. He's being given, it is after the war's over, he's being given land in Judea to sustain him, and he starts writing The Jewish War, uh, this enormously important book, seven volumes. And he, but in, it's worth mentioning now, we may come back to it, we may not, just in case we don't, that one of the reasons he was called a traitor is not only he went over to Rome, but he worked with Titus and Vespasian i.e. having been a former general, however incompetent, he must have known what was what and said, they're strong over there, they're not over there, they've got a few. he must have helped them out in a yes, practical yes. way, which yes. is really if a very serious act of being yes, uh, yes. serious business. Okay, right, now let's get back to this book. Uh, what did he cover in the Jewish War, the book, the Jewish War? He covered basically the story from the Maccabees down to the, the fall of the temple, down to the end of the... Um, Jewish revolt and it's, it's worth noting that in fact he tells us in the preface to the book that he first wrote a, an account of the war in Aramaic it's almost certain he's referring to Aramaic and he sent it to the Jews in the eastern diaspora which would have been Jews in modern day Iraq, modern day Persia and possibly Syria and North, North Arabia but then he decided to translate this into Greek. And he gives several reasons why he, he decided to do that. First of all, the Jewish war was actually a big uh, event. It was large, talked about at, at great length in the Roman world of the time. It was a big news item, if you like. And he hints that there were other people had been writing accounts. And they were not... Uh, you know, not accurate. So he decided to actually tell the story, and he was able to do it because he had a ringside seat. It was also flexing his muscles, wasn't it? Because Thucydides had written about the, the war between Athens and Sparta as the greatest war ever fought, and Josephus thought, well, this yes. is the greatest war ever fought, and I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Thucydides, write in Greek, invent speeches, do it the way yes. he did it, because yes. Thucydides was a sort of the historian whom you wanted to emulate. Yes, yes. No, he... he, he um, he clearly thought that he was emulating the great Greek historians, and he does say that this was the greatest war that had been fought. Martin, you, you raise your hand. Yes, no, I just thought that uh, the, the seven books as we have them in Greek uh, have very clearly got uh, a Roman uh, audience in mind, and that's simply from the title of the work, which he calls in his later works The Jewish War. So from the point of view of the Romans, it was the Jewish war. Of course, from the point of view of the Jews, it would have been the Roman war. So if he wrote an earlier account for Jews, he must have had a different title. Yes. Tessa, Tessa Rajak, why do you think he wrote the Jewish war? Yes, well, I'd like to throw something else uh, uh, here into the, um, into the picture. Um, and if I may just query slightly my esteemed colleague's um, uh, last remark, um, we're not sure that ancient works had titles at all and I think the Romans put that one on Josephus I think there is a, a, a big Jewish internal component um, to the work and I do think that in the end who would have actually bought it, picked it up and read it but people who were really really interested, not those Romans but um, uh, 
Jews from all over the world. People wanted to know why Jerusalem fell, and I think he felt he owed them an account, and not just of what he had done, but of what happened. And he says something very interesting. He has a long preface where he sets up the work, and he says, I hope you'll allow me also to lament for the fall of my country and of Jerusalem, and um, although my facts are better than anybody else's, I was an eyewitness, this is an entirely true history, not like my competitors, there is also room for me as a what we would call an engaged historian to to express my feelings and I think this is a post-war post-catastrophe um, world and I think also it's why did why did it happen how did it happen and whose fault was it and a lot of the work we'll see more of this when we talk about the Christian take on it is blaming those Jews who went to war it's a huge, huge attack on the extremists among those nationalists, extremists in religion and in politics who forced the war on a moderate group of which Josephus was one of the leaders. Martin Goodman, do you want to take that on in any way, amplify it, and, and the, the idea of him blaming the extremists, uh, Sicarii, the, the extremists there, uh, and how that, how, how that ties in with your view of his factual uh, reliability. Yes, and he, he, it's his instant history. So, so he was writing it within. It's not about bad instant history. I mean, oh, that's great. people. You, I, one thing I want can I pick up on a tiny okay. thing, and please ignore it. But he just niggles away. You say he's writing with hindsight. Don't all you historians write with hindsight? I mean, of what's history about? It's about the past. So you've got hindsight. What's the mm-hmm. problem? Yeah, indeed, and it's always, it always right. the answer Sorry. is it's always a problem. It's always a problem because you you know the disaster is going to come. But what's the um, question with the particular problem with Josephus? Right, I forget it. Sorry. Okay, it's, it's the particular problem with Josephus because of the extent of the disaster. And this is, this is something that perhaps we've lost sight of over the last 2,000 years, that the temple in Jerusalem was the main place where God required uh, his people to worship him. And there hasn't been one for the last 2,000 years, so we sort of got used to the idea. Um, but, but, but it wasn't at all obvious in antiquity when worshipping in temples was the standard way to worship. And in Rome, where he was writing uh, the account of the Jewish war, the uh, propaganda of the new regime of Vespasian and Titus was based entirely around the defeat of the Jews. So you think of the Arch of Titus, you can still see when you go to Rome. Uh, You think of the Colosseum that was built with the money that came from slaves who were sold at the end of the Jewish rebellion. Jewish slaves, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the centre of Rome, where he was writing, had been reconstructed to, so to speak, describe uh, uh, Judaism as, as, a, as a, a no longer a, uh, an acceptable religion. Um, and so he had a lot to explain. Philip, you want to come in? Yes. For me, one of the key points about the message that he's trying to get across in the war is it's looking both ways. On the one hand, it's saying to the Romans, don't blame all the Jews for this disaster. It was a, a lot of hotheads. But that same message also in the Jewish context is saying to Jews, don't follow these hotheads. So there's a kind of double, double a Janus-like um, at, uh, aspect to the, the message of the war and much of Josephus's writing. Can I come back to, to pick up something that implied in what you said, Martin, that the, 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 the much that was made of it in Rome, was that because Vespasian and his son Titus wanted to 
prove their imperial credentials, which didn't come from birth but came from war. So they they made it a massive thing with their arches and their Colosseum, and it was very important. And this was a great war that everybody ought to understand, with the candelabra from the temple being paraded through Rome, and so on and so forth. Wasn't it a, wasn't it partly to do? with the propaganda push on the part of those two, father and son? I think probably entirely to do with that. Um, so, so, so if you go back to the, 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 the lack of legitimacy for Vespasian and Titus becoming emperor, they needed to say what a great victory they had won. And in Roman society, you got political power through military competence. Um, and so, that, so it, what had been an internal rebellion within the Roman Empire was portrayed as a, uh, as a defeat of foreigners. Um, and, and so, so Josephus has a lot to, to try to explain, and I, I entirely agree with Philip that ultimately what Josephus would have liked would have been a return of a temple and ordinary, proper, sensible Jews like him um, back with a temple and with the priests doing what they'd always done before, which is what you might have expected to have happened in 66 when the revolt break out, broke out. And the beginning of the revolt was marked by the priests in the temple refusing to make offerings uh, to the Jewish god on behalf of the Roman emperor, you would expect the war to have ended with the temple still standing and the Jews being encouraged to make such offerings. It didn't end that way. It ended up with no temple at all. Um, Can we move on, unless there's something crucial more to say about that, to this 20-volume work, uh, The Antiquities of the Jews... Uh, right, okay. Any bids? No bids. Right, Philip. Let's talk about the antiquities of the Jews. Twenty volumes after the after his uh, after his first great book. Yes, <coughs> it's written about twenty years after the Jewish War, and um, about ninety four probably uh, under Domitian. And I find it personally a much more engaging book because what he tries to do in that is cover the whole history of the Jews, their culture, their religion, and it's very much aimed at a Gentile audience to argue that the Jews are an ancient people with great traditions and a a great culture. Um, It shows his learning in a way, his traditional Jewish learning in a way that the war doesn't, because a large part of the book is retelling the story of the Bible, what we now call the Bible. And he tells it with all sorts of additions and interpretations, which shows how he was trained in school in Jerusalem, taught this method of reading of reading Bible. So it's a, I find it a very warm and, and very interesting book. And it shows that right to the end of his life, he was deeply engaged with his, his native culture and trying to explain it. But the problem which will arise is that he's doing it from Rome, in Rome, uh, as the he's now officially called Flavius, uh, if he wants to call himself Flavius, which he does in a later book, and he's in that camp instead of that camp. Uh, yeah. And that never goes away, does it? Yes, but can I just gloss that a little, in that he belongs in that sense to a great diaspora world of Jewish culture. You've got to think of the two, the two poles of Jewish World, There's the centre in Palestine, in, in Jerusalem, and then there's the diaspora. And he's really part, at that point, of what's called Hellenistic Greek Jewish culture. And that's really quite different uh, in, in quality and tone from what was being produced in, in the old homeland. 
Tessa Rajak, as you mentioned, I think, um, the antiquities was very thought ought to be very valuable to early Christians for for, for nearly two thousand years. Can you explain why? Yes. Um, if I could just add one tailpiece to what Philip said, by the time he wrote the Antiquities, he had a different patron. It was no longer the Flavians. He may or may not still have been living in Vespasian's old house, but he had a guy called Epaphroditus, a Greek freedman. So he belongs also to that world of Greeks living in Rome who have their own cultural identity, uh, all sorts of Asian and Syrian Greek uh, writers uh, from well, and from other parts of the Roman Empire. So the Antiquities, um, and he wrote another work, Defending Judaism, the Against Appio. Yeah, but we come to that. Uh, Can we talk about well. the Antiquities, right? Yes, um, indeed. So, I mean, uh, Josephus was um, absolutely God's gift to uh, early Christianity as it separated from Judaism. And, and that was happened at about the time of the destruction of the temple. So we're talking about a very, very radical thing happening in that first century. A lot of radical things, but perhaps in, in one one particular area, a rather large area of life, doesn't seem to diminish at all one way or another, a massive area of life. Uh, the temple crushed, the Christians seem to come through grow in important, cheese the chance whatever you can use better phrases than I am but something happened, there was a step change there so can you tell us why yeah. the Christians thought it was the so Christians right? had to do two things of course, they had to graft their own um, new sect which became a religion onto Jewish history to see themselves as the new Israel to appropriate as it were Judaism and so for them an account of the fall of the temple and apparently the end of Judaism in Jerusalem was tremendously important and so they had that already in the Jewish war and then they had this fantastic critique of Judaism so Josephus came to them um, as really persona grata he really was all things to all men in his lifetime and therefore subsequently. But what about the Christians? Uh, and for the Christians too um, he told them how wicked the Jews had been and that was perfect and then ironically the antiquities come into play as you say and so ironically because his fame rests on a passage that's probably a forgery it's the so-called Testimonium Flavianum as it was known through the Middle Ages and on and paragraph about about Jesus, which begins an external the, witness. Yeah, about yeah, the time they yeah. led Jesus, a wise man, if you need more to call him a man, he's one performed surprising deeds, and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, is still to this day has not disappeared. So that paragraph, which which is disputed as to whether he did it or it was done, hundred, two hundred more later, that paragraph was seized on when the thing came through as yes. evidence, independent evidence of the Gospels that this was happening and therefore his work was taken into their literature. And he uh, was esteemed warmly. as a yeah. historian because yes. a witness and a prophet. Ironically, you could, from the p bit that you read, one can already see that he couldn't have written the whole of it. Um, if indeed he was a man is one thing, the resurrection is mentioned, <coughs> um, and... Um, and um, he was the Christ comes in halfway through. So it's either wholly or partly tampered with and we know that happened between um, one of the church fathers origin who says Josephus doesn't mention Jesus and another Eusebius who has this whole passage. Well, Eusebius at the time of Constantine. He's about, exactly right. and from then on um, now it's true to say that during the Renaissance there were dissenting voices critical um, and sceptical uh, 
scholars um, queried the testimony, but on the whole, it uh, marched on through the centuries um, and made Josephus probably the most read Greek historian um, right through the Christian Europe through many centuries. I Philip, think. you wanted to come in. Philip, I, I, was, I was just wanting to emphasize the importance of Eusebius, who's been mentioned, as you say, the friend of Constantine. He wrote the definitive history of the early church, the ecclesiastical history, and he relies a lot on Josephus. And what he really relies on him mostly for is this uh, account of the destruction of the temple because he wants to argue this shows God rejecting Judaism. So it's really Eusebius who, I think, brings him into the Christian tradition in a big way, and from Eusebius on, then he, he is almost a Christian saint. And it's with Constantine who brings him into the Roman tradition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, Romanizes the entire thing. Can you be brief? Because I want to, yeah, please. Very brief indeed. I just wanted to say that the antiquities, of course, also provided Eusebius and everybody subsequently with lots and lots of material that actually backed up the gospel accounts. It told everyone who the Herods were and it told them about the geography of the place. Um, without it, I mean, very little <laughs> would have been known about the world of Jesus. So it was just an indispensable Vade Mecum apart from the, you know, the reference to Jesus. Yeah. Um, Martin Goodman, there were many translations of Josephus. He goes in like a lot of these writers. He goes in and out of fashion. Uh, let's go to the 18th century with William Whiston's translation. Why was that important? It's been an astonishing publishing phenomenon. Um, uh, there were lots of translations, as you say, into the uh, originally into Latin uh, in late antiquity by Christian authors. Um, and then uh, uh, within the Christian world into the different vernaculars, so French and Spanish and English, um, during the 16th and 17th centuries. So th the success of Whiston's translation, which was not at all the first English translation, is rather remarkable. By the 19th century, if you went into uh, many ordinary homes in this country or in the United States you would find a copy of a Whiston Josephus sitting next to the Bible, possibly not read, but certainly there with a sense of authority. And if you go onto the internet, now it's the Whiston translation that you hit most easily. Uh, Whiston was a r remarkable person. He was the successor of Newton as the Lucasian Professor of Mathematics in Cambridge and then got thrown out for his um, uh, dubious ideas uh, in uh, Christian theology and just wrote and wrote and wrote for the rest of his life um, during the uh, uh, first half of the 18th century um, and the success of this particular translation one of many translations he did is a bit of a, a mystery why, why it trumped all the other ones but, but, but it did and it helped to spread the authority of Josephus in the uh, English-speaking world, clearly with um, immense success. One of the dramatic things in, 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 in this is the, his description, Josephus' description of the uh, fall of Masada, the 960 people who committed suicide there. It's, it's, um, it's taken uh, as, as, as a correct description. It's an extremely vivid description. If you go to Masada, it's, it's sort of, as it were, pinned on the walls there. And there's very little uh, questioning of whether this 
is or is not accurate. Now, where do you stand on that, Tessa? Well, of course, it has been questioned by um, sort of post and anti Zionists in very um, active debate um, recently, and it's now interesting that they go back and say, "Well, how can this be a, a, a such um, a, a highlighted and much prized story um, for you know um, for the for, 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 for Israel and um, in Jewish consciousness when it's probably not true? Josephus was a liar, wasn't he? That's um, where the debate has come down to. So again, Josephus centre stage. I stand um, on it that of course, well, we, we all knew that the speeches are made up. As you mentioned, his good Greek historians make up speeches. The story um, of the collective suicide, which is a sort of a counterpoise to what Josephus didn't do at Yotapata, and here suicide is advocated and carried out by these 960 survivors of the Roman mopping up operation in 73 or 4 CE. It's a very dramatic story as told by Josephus, and again it is a counterpoise also to his telling of the Roman triumph of Vespasian and Titus, um, which he has to do, I suppose, as a good Flavian writer and here he actually highlights um, Jewish uh, it is the one glorious moment of the extremists I know there are some ambivalences in his account of the suicide but nonetheless we come away thinking wow and my belief is that something very like it must have happened though of course he embellished it and made it a great set piece which has been tremendously important in um, uh, 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 since really uh, uh, the late 19th century in forming Jewish, modern Jewish identity um, as a, 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 a fighting people rather than a passive people. Um, Is there a general agreement on that uh, opinion? Uh, certainly of the importance of the Masada story in, in sort of Jewish self-consciousness. Uh, of course, it's slightly bizarre that self-consciousness should be the heroism of total failure because they all end up... Uh, uh, dying at Masada, but it's part of the um, complexity of, of of the Jewish reception of Josephus to, to, down to the 21st century, because everything we've been talking about has been the Christian reception, among whom Josephus was seen as immensely authoritative and important. And then among Jews who didn't read the Greek books of Josephus until the Renaissance, because they just didn't read the Greek um, and it was entirely preserved uh, Josephus' work by Christians when they came to know about it they were much more ambivalent about it um, and so you have uh, contrasting views um, from the uh, early 19th century among Jews as to whether the, uh, the works of Josephus are as Christians thought a great authority for the nature of Jewish history or whether they are indeed the work of a traitor who shouldn't be believed about anything can we concentrate on that for a while, maybe for the rest of the programme, Philip? Philip Alexander. Uh, one of the points I would stress again with my colleagues is the way that Josephus' account of the fall of Masada creates this big symbol for the modern state of Israel. And that is very interestingly encapsulated in a famous poem by a modern uh, is, uh, Hebrew author called Isaac Lamdan. And he called it Masada. And it's very interesting, although he wrote in Hebrew, he calls it by Josephus' Greek name Masada, not the, the Hebrew name. And the most famous line in that poem 
is Masada shall not fall again. And that it's a good line. It's a it's a very good line. But what this means is, you know, Masada becomes a symbol for the beleaguered state of Israel, and it expresses the determination that Masada shall not fall again. I just want to be say a little more about this business of being, him being considered to have been a traitor. And there's still a dispute among scholars uh, and in, in among Jewish scholars and other scholars. Uh, is he to be relied on because he went to the other side? He probably informed for the other side against what would be seen as his own people, helped them to win, and helped a lot of <laughs> killings of, of, of his fellow citizens back in Jerusalem and around the place. What's, this, what's the status of that at the moment, Martin? Uh, well, I, I think it, the, the, the dispute over it has not really resolved itself since the began in the 1820s and 1830s when the, the Wissenschaft des Judentums movement, which is the, the science of Judaism in Germany, began trying to find a sort of historical scientific base for Jewish history um, so that Jews would look like other European nations and have a history of their own. And Josephus was wonderful for them because instead of having to talk about one rabbi after another, they could talk about what looked like political history for the whole of the Hasmonean period that Philip was talking about at the beginning, which otherwise they know almost nothing about without Josephus's writings. So, so they, they saw him as very important for writing this history, but at the same time, uh, this is the same period as, as Jews were looking at their status within European societies uh, uh, being given emancipation within European societies, so beginning to become good Germans as well as Jews, or good Englishmen as well as Jews, um, and also worrying about the nature of Jewish nationalism. Um, and uh, what happened was that uh, uh, Jews began to see uh, Josephus both as very important as their authority for a national history at the same time as they saw him as somebody who had swapped sides. And so he's so, still put on trial occasionally. Yeah, and in, 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 the, in the 20th century, it was standard among youth groups, um, Jewish youth groups, to put Josephus on trial, and people would talk on either side. Indeed, in the French uh, resistance, a Jewish youth group did this. You'd have thought they'd have other things to do, but they did put him on trial, and he was convicted. Well, unfortunately, I've jumped to an end there. Thanks to Martin Goodman, Tessa Rajak, and Philip Alexander. Next week, we'll be talking about the science of glass. Thank you for listening. For listening, even. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Are you going to tell me what we missed out? I know you're going to tell me. <laughs> Don't tell me what you're going to miss. It's too big a subject. Yes, we, 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 we missed out your sip on. Um, but, um, but you implied your sip Yes. Because the Lamdan um, poem is from your sip on. Yes, yes. Um, so your sip on is this um, um, uh, Hebrew version from the Latin that became very important among rabbinic Jews from, yeah. from the 9th century. Well, we missed out the whole rabbinic take, not takeover, yeah. sw swinging to the rabbinic tradition after yes, 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 uh, yes, 74, yes. didn't we, really? Well, the yeah. ahistoricism, which was then remedied in, by, by the Enlightenment, that yeah. became yeah. conscious of, of history. And we also missed out the against... Apion, which I didn't su didn't <laughs> succeed in smuggling in, which is really how Josephus redeemed himself in the eyes of uh, Jewish scholars and lay people. That although, as um, Heinrich Gretz said, he 
didn't earn the crown of a patriot, but he, he they often say he did, um, in the end, justify his existence as a Jew by defending Judaism against mm. anti-Semites and all sorts. Yes, of, was uh, a, other, I was uh, a, I was a bold move to, to write the, that uh, in Rome at the time where they were still, you know, they were... They, still, the Jews are still regarded as a, I think, completely political enemy, uh, and for him to sit down and write, and it must have taken a lot of nerve, I thought, and the antiquities yeah. as well. Right? Yeah, and it didn't really have much effect as propaganda for the Jews, you know, yeah. trying to explain the Jews. I think because they remained regarded with huge suspicion. Of course, very shortly after there was a second revolt. Well, there was revolt. Yeah. Hey. Again, he was probably preaching that to the converted is there's a feel-good factor there isn't yes, there yes. how we defend ourselves and and restore our own sort of sense of pride but it was very useful also to christians they took a lot of motifs in christian apologetics come straight out of josephus so you think against the, the, sorry to interrupt you no, think the christian right. references just is is later altogether it's inserted uh, later you think that too? I think there's a core. I, I, I think, think, I think, a I co- think there was something core. there yes. to hang yes. it on. Be, be, because if you look at the two passages either side, it looks like there was something there. Yeah. Oh, do you think so? I, I think, think they close up neatly do, without yeah. anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Martin on this. I, I think there was a peg. Yes. Yeah. A, a peg. The, the bit that I didn't answer properly was the question of the reliability of Josephus. Yeah. Um, because I mean, the, the, the real question was, why, why, why go on writing about this stuff at all? So why write about Jews in a society which is deeply anti-Jewish yeah. when if he had to write anything, he should have written poetry or, or didn't have something which would have been safer? Harmless, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and the against Appion is the most striking of these things um, yeah. because why defend Judaism in a society where it's just a silly thing to do and, and plenty of Jews to stop being Jewish? So yeah. why do you think he did? Because he cares about it and, yeah. he, and, and he actually believes that this prophecy that said God has spoken to him <laughs> which, which uh, modern readers are extremely sceptical about um, we know about because he told us um, yeah. so I, I, think, I think he believes it We have Simon Tillerson, the producer who's going to make an important you. announcement We'd like to eat There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4